Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if I can give my thoughts on the documentary Leaving Neverland, which is really a movie about these accusations against Michael Jackson. So this is a really controversial topic. A lot of people were upset by this movie, and we know that strong emotions tend to interfere with critical thinking. So this is one of those areas where it becomes hard to kind of figure out what happened, and it can be hard to even conduct the analysis, again, if people have strong emotions. Now, of course, Michael Jackson and all the people featured in Leaving Neverland are real people, so it's important to mention here that I'm not diagnosing anybody, only speculating based on what could be happening in a situation similar to what we see here. So I watched the documentary a while back, uh, a few weeks ago, and it was four hours. I found it to be one-sided. Like, they were trying to convince the audience of a particular occurrence or a set of occurrences rather than just presenting evidence and letting the audience decide. And whenever I see documentaries, I'll loosely call it a documentary, it's really just just a movie, I guess. Whenever I see movies like this, I really get skeptical because it feels like there's an agenda. Now, on top of this, this movie was exceedingly boring. You have about one hour of really interesting content spread out over four hours. Now, this doesn't speak to the validity of any of the statements made in the series, just something I like to point out. It's really boring. I'm not a big fan of boring things. Now, we see a lot of interviews in Leaving Neverland that are really just people talking about what someone else said, even though that someone else is also in the movie. So again, just a lot of wasted time. 
so I don't necessarily recommend watching it, but then again, this video wouldn't really make a lot of sense if somebody didn't watch it, I guess. It helps to have watched it before watching this video, but I found it to be kind of a waste of time, and I think some of the summaries on the internet that are available do pretty much just as good a job at talking about what's mentioned in Leaving Neverland, and I'll put those links to those sources in the description for this video. So we see a lot of reviews of this movie, right? A lot of people have opinions about it. We see reviews like, it's overwhelmingly powerful and convincing. You know, pretty significant review there. We see another review that says it's a devastatingly and undeniable persuasive film. So interesting, right? Now, I didn't just cherry pick these two. There's a lot of reviews like this. We see in one review the word convincing, and in another review the word persuasive. So again, the skepticism alarm really goes off loudly when I see, well, a movie like this and when I see reviews like this. So people are having an emotional and not necessarily a logical response to the movie. So something else important here to mention before I get into the timeline and my other thoughts in terms of what this shows us or doesn't show us about Michael Jackson. I've been around for a while, right? So I was relatively young when Michael Jackson was becoming really famous, like, I guess, mid-80s or so. And he was, of course, exceedingly popular even back then. But it's one thing to see kind of all this information crammed together now, like in Leaving Neverland and other sources we see. But they might not be presented in order, and we don't really see it unfold in real time. But throughout my life, not that I've tracked the Michael Jackson case closely or anything, but throughout my life, I've seen this unfold in real time, and it's really something else to live through all those stories in real time as opposed to having everything just put in front of you at once. It gives me, I think anyway, a perspective in terms of the whole history of Michael Jackson and all these different things we see that are said about him and his behaviors and other things we see over time. So, all right, moving to the timeline. So I'm going to go through kind of a quick timeline. It's not going to take four hours like it did in the movie. Uh, it's just going to be a quick timeline and then I'm going to get to kind of my thoughts about guilt or innocence here. So I'm going to start my timeline 1987. We see two players kind of emerge here. One is James Safechuck. He was born in 1978. So he was about nine years old in 1987 when he met Michael Jackson on the set of a commercial they were doing. It was a Pepsi commercial. I still remember that commercial from years ago. This started a friendship and a lot of giving of gifts, and a lot of time spent together. So essentially, in 87, Michael Jackson befriended this nine-year-old James Safechuck. James Safechuck was from the United States, and of course Michael Jackson was from the United States as well. We see in 1987 another person, and this was the other person featured in the movie, Wade Robson. Now he was from Australia. He was born in 1982, so he was younger than James Safechuck. He met Michael Jackson in Australia because Wade had won like a dancing competition there. And they also started a friendship which was somewhat similar to the one we see with James. Both had the families involved and most prominently featured would be the mothers of both James and Wade. So they were going places, they were spending time at Neverland Ranch, which is the estate, Michael Jackson's estate. 
and all these other things going on tour with him and all these other things. So it was unusual, I guess to say the least, but this is what we see. And both of these relationships started in 1987. We see in 1991 that Wade Robson moves with his mother and sister, I believe, to Los Angeles to kind of work with Michael Jackson. In 1992, we see that James Safechuck made his last visit to Neverland Ranch. This becomes important later on. In 1993, we see a criminal investigation and then a civil suit that was eventually settled for $22 million. So there was a civil suit filed against Michael Jackson alleging that he had abused another child. And this made Michael Jackson kind of look guilty because of the settlement. But if you look at the facts around the case, it was a very unconvincing case. There was a lot of problems with it. But either way, this kind of got the ball rolling in terms of accusations. Now, also in 1993, under oath, we see that both Wade Robson and James Safechuck said that Michael Jackson never did anything to them. Now, this is 1993. So if you look at leaving Neverland, of course, they're saying that a lot of things happened prior to 1993. So this becomes a problem for their stories. In 1994, the police announced there are going to be no charges in terms of that criminal investigation that went along with that civil suit. And we see in 1996 that Wade Robson spends his last night with Michael Jackson. So he alleges that he was abused from age 7 to age 14. Now in 2003, we see that criminal charges are put together in a case involving a 10-year-old named Garvin Arviso. And again, he alleged, and his family alleged, that Michael Jackson abused him. Now, this was 2003, but it took until 2005 for the trial to take place, and by then there were 14 charges filed against Michael Jackson in this case. Wade Robson, who was 22 during the time of this trial in 2005, testified for Michael Jackson, and he said that nothing happened. We also see other people that testified, including an actor named Macaulay Coughlin. Now, James Safechuck did not testify in that trial. He was actually disallowed by the judge in terms of being a prosecution witness, and the defense never called him to testify. Now, he says he refused to testify, so we get two different stories here. Now, at the end of this, we see that Michael Jackson was found not guilty of all 14 counts. And we see that the alleged victim's mother, Janet Arviso, was actually charged with fraud and perjury related to statements she made at the trial, and eventually she accepted a plea agreement and was convicted. In 2009, at age 50, Michael Jackson dies of cardiac arrest. And we see in 2013, so four years after Michael Jackson died, we see Wade Robson sues, now alleging that he was abused. And in 2014, James Safechuck does the same thing. Both of their lawsuits were thrown out. They weren't allowed to continue with them. But as I understand it, they've both appealed. So their hopes, if you want to put it that way, of suing the Michael Jackson estate are technically still alive. That's important to keep in mind as well when watching Leaving Neverland. So now getting to my thoughts on this case. Well, of course, when we look at a situation like this, again, Leaving Neverland wants us to believe that Wade Robson and James Safechuck are telling the truth, and Michael Jackson was an offender. Well, no one will ever know whether he was or he wasn't. Now, if we look at the evidence critically related to Michael Jackson's behavior, we can, I think, draw some conclusions 
that are fairly definitive, and there's other areas, again, that are kind of still murky. It's important to mention before I get into each of these areas that Michael Jackson was extremely famous, and people tend to want things from celebrities. So he wasn't just like an average famous person. Again, he was off the charts famous. There had never really been another recording artist like Michael Jackson. So just important to keep in mind as I go through kind of the elements that stand out that make him look guilty, and those elements that stand out that I think speak toward him looking more innocent. So in terms of the factors that we see in leaving Neverland and the other evidence we have that stand out in terms of like siding with guilt, that make it look like Michael Jackson was guilty. I think one of these components is he formed friendships with young boys and children in general. But I think specifically the boys kind of look suspicious. Michael Jackson and these boys would sleep in the same bed. And this was, of course, a big bed. He had a large bed at the Neverland Ranch, but still, it was the same bed. And this is something that would not be tolerated if he was a normal person, right? I mean, Michael Jackson was able to do this because of his celebrity status. I think part of this, too, speaks to the trust he was able to gain of the family, specifically the mothers. And again, I think his celebrity status and his money probably helped a lot with that. So just this idea of being a grown man and having friends who are boys and then spending the night with them, this makes Michael Jackson look guilty. The next thing is just the sheer amount of time he spent with them. We're talking about day after day, week after week, and sometimes month after month, sleeping in the same bedroom and spending time with them. We see in Leaving Netherland that he sent faxes to Wade Robson when he was in Australia, when Wade Robson was in Australia, and a lot of phone communication. Like, there was just a lot of time invested, and it just looks suspicious. The next thing is we see a number of photographs, just photographs and video, of Michael Jackson with these boys. And he has his hands on them. They seem very friendly. It just, again, it looks suspicious. I don't think there's any way of getting around it. It doesn't look good. And you could also view it another way, though. Maybe he had nothing to hide, and he wasn't really thinking about it, so he just did whatever he wanted in terms of getting photographed and having video taken of him. But I think overall this kind of makes him look guilty. Another element here, and I didn't really see great support for this, but there's some evidence available that he had like bells and alarms on the way to his room at Neverland Ranch. As I understand it, Macaulay Coughlin testified to this. So, okay, that looks a little bit suspicious, right? Why would you have like devices that make noise as people approach your bedroom? So, Again, I'm not sure that was really something that happened, but if it was true, that looks a little bit suspect. The other element, of course, and this is kind of all over the Leaving Neverland film, would be this component of Wade and James telling their stories, right? They told stories of horrible, heinous abuse, and they seem credible to many people. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. And their stories are consistent with the behaviors of offenders. So we don't know if their stories are true, but I have a lot of clinical experience working with offenders and victims. And in terms of their consistency with what I've heard in other stories, they, again, do seem to be consistent. So this could be a product of telling the truth or a product of good research, but either way we have that consistency piece. So in terms of the elements that I found that did seem kind of believable, we see the mental health issues that Wade and James allege that they have like depression and anxiety, these would be consistent with victims of this type of offending. Now, they could also be explained from the industry, right? They worked when they were young in Hollywood. That's a lot of pressure. But either way, I found this element to be believable in light of what I've heard before. There are conflicted feelings about Michael Jackson. They seem to kind of love him and be angry with him at the same time. I've seen that before. Lying for him, including testifying under oath, Possible, yes, I think this is consistent at least with, again, other stories I've heard. And the lack of physical evidence. In these types of cases with offending, there isn't always a lot of physical evidence. And of course, we didn't really see any physical evidence in the case against Michael Jackson. So all those elements don't look good for Michael Jackson because they kind of support this idea that maybe Wade and James were telling the truth. Now, that's not actually the worst thing, I think, in terms of what looks bad for Michael Jackson here. I think what looks really the worst, in my opinion, from leaving Neverland and just my understanding of the case, would be after 1993, when Michael Jackson was accused and then settled. Whether he was guilty or not, why didn't he stop, right? So he must have had attorneys and other people advising him, saying, look, we understand that you like hanging around these children, and we understand your reasons. But this just cost you $22 million and could have resulted in criminal charges. So if you keep doing it, you're making yourself an easy target. So it makes sense that even though he enjoyed spending the time with the children, it makes sense that he just would have stopped. I think it would have been a reasonable course of action just to never do that again. And yet, he does it repeatedly for many, many years. So that's what stands out in terms of him looking guilty. How about what stands out in terms of him looking innocent? So the other side of the coin here. Well, in the 1993 case, we see that case was weak. And once the idea is out there that you're going to settle for $22 million, it was never actually released, but I believe that's what it is according to the evidence I've seen. But either way, it was a large sum of money. So you're going to settle for that kind of money 
And that's going to kind of lead to false accusations, right? Once that gets out there, that you settle cases, that's not going to have a good result. So it was a weak case, and it may have started everything bad for Michael Jackson. We also see that the FBI investigated Michael Jackson for over 10 years. We generally view them, at least I do, as competent. They're a competent law enforcement agency, and they didn't find anything. It seems like if something was going on, they would have found it. We also see that in leaving Neverland, the defenders of Michael Jackson really weren't featured. His children, other children not related to him, they're credible, and they've never changed their stories. And again, the movie doesn't really mention them in any significant way. In the 2005 trial, you see 14 charges and a not guilty verdict on all the charges. This really cannot be downplayed in terms of its significance. The prosecutors brought a case, and they failed to prove their case. So he was found not guilty, and I think that has to matter at some level. We also see that in this trial, of course, I mentioned Wade Robson testified. And his story now has been that he didn't understand what happened as being abusive, right? So he knows what happened the whole time, but he didn't interpret it or perceive it as abuse. Now, if this were true, why wouldn't he have answered differently in this trial in terms of questions? He was asked about behavior, not just his interpretation of the behavior, and he still maintained that nothing happened. Also, Wade Robson was an adult. He was 22 years old. He spent a lot of time with Michael Jackson's attorney, Tom Mesereau. There's no reason to believe that Tom Mesereau was unethical or would do anything wrong. And it seems really inconceivable to me that Tom Mesereau would call a victim of Michael Jackson to the stand as a key witness. So we're supposed to believe that Michael Jackson did not tell Tom Mesereau the truth. So I just find this hard to believe. If Michael Jackson was like a master criminal and got away with all this offending, he would certainly tell his attorney what was going on. Why would he hide information that could help him in his defense? Right? It just it doesn't make any sense. So if Michael Jackson really had that poor an understanding of what he was doing and the law, then how did he function well in other parts of his life, like having a successful career? It just seems like it doesn't line up for me. I think that Tom Mesro would have known the truth. And if he knew the truth, he definitely would not have called Wade Robson to the stand. That really just makes no sense. So that whole thing with Wade Robson just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think it actually speaks to Michael Jackson's innocence. Now, in terms of James Safechuck, I mentioned that, of course, he didn't testify. But he claimed that Michael Jackson called and threatened him, basically threatening him because he wanted him to come testify on his behalf. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense either. You're going to threaten somebody and then have them on the stand where they can say anything. Also, there's really no corroboration for this particular type of behavior in Michael Jackson. We don't see anyone else reporting that he was ever threatening or aggressive. So I think this component kind of weakens James's story. Now, we also see kind of a key error in leaving Neverland. James alleged that the abuse happened from 1988 to 1992, and one of the locations was the Neverland Ranch. He indicates that some of the abuse occurred in the train station during that time. The only problem is the train station wasn't built until 93-94. The permit was pulled in 93 and it was completed in 94. Now, the director, 
Dan Reed, says that the date they have wrong is the end of the abuse. So what he's really saying is the abuse went from 1988 to 1994, at least. Now, I find this unusual for a few reasons. One is, of course, it's technically inaccurate, right? They got caught with the whole train station thing. But second, offenders, if Michael Jackson was an offender, offenders don't like transitions between stages. Like, they don't like it when children go to being adolescents. And this would mean that the abuse of James ended when he was 16 instead of 14. So he would have looked more like an adult at 16 than 14. Now, this doesn't mean that some offenders wouldn't do that. But if we're going to talk about like what I've typically seen in my clinical experience, and I'm going to talk about that in terms of what makes Michael Jackson look guilty, then I have to mention it as well in terms of what makes him look innocent. And offending against somebody who transitions from being a child to an adolescent is somewhat unusual. Again, it does happen, but it speaks more towards Michael Jackson's innocence. Now, I mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again that James also said under oath that Michael Jackson never did anything to him. Not the 2005 trial, but before that. So, again, something that's important. So what it comes down to for Wade and James, I think, is this. They may be telling the truth, and we should hear them out. But they are, in my opinion, discredited, right? Victims can do bad things too. They may be victims, but they are discredited because if you say something under oath in the justice system, at least in the United States, I'm sure in many other countries, that means something. It's a foundational concept. Wade Robson desperately wanted us to believe he was telling the truth in 2005 when he testified. And now he desperately wants us to believe the truth in 2019, the time when leaving Neverland was released. So was he lying then or is he lying now? That's the problem here. If they are telling the truth, then this is tragic. If they are lying, this is tragic. So what we know for sure here is a tragedy occurred. That's all we really know from watching Leaving Neverland. So why did they do it if in fact they were lying? Well, they could be lying to themselves or they could have done it for the money or maybe a little bit of both. I don't know that they were lying. Again, just if they were lying, those are some reasons they could have been lying. So what do we learn from Leaving Neverland and really this whole story with Michael Jackson? Well, one of the first things we learn here is it's important to tell the truth. And this is, I guess, really specifically related to like Wade Robson and James Safechuck. You have to tell the truth if you want to be believed throughout your life, if you want to have credibility. It takes a lifetime to build up a reputation and credibility, and only a split second to have it all go away. Another thing we learn is, in terms of Michael Jackson, don't even give the appearance of wrongdoing. And unfortunately for Michael Jackson, he did give that appearance through his behavior. We can also learn a little bit about the power of celebrity status, whether Michael Jackson was guilty or not guilty. We see that the mothers of Wade and James really appeared to demonstrate terrible judgment. I'm not sure how else to word it. I mean, they more or less say as much in the movie, but if you just look at the examples, they just didn't seem to exercise good decision-making by leaving their children alone with Michael Jackson, having him sleep in the same bed without them there, or even with them there, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So what do I think, given all the evidence here, both for and against Michael Jackson? 
Well, the Leaving Neverland special kind of leaves us with, more or less anyway, I think two options. Anyway, this is how I see it. One is, Michael Jackson was a master criminal who evaded law enforcement for years and years and offended against many children. Now, that could have happened. I don't know. But that's one of the theories that we're left with from this movie. The second one would be that Michael Jackson had odd behavior, perhaps even his own mental health struggles, I don't know. He had incredible fame and wealth, and all these things combined to make him an easy target. So those are the two theories that I think you walk away with from leaving Neverland. Of course, I believe they want you to believe the first theory, right, the master criminal theory, but either way, those are two possible conclusions. So my thoughts. Well, I really thought about this a lot and kind of deliberated over the evidence. I actually went back and forth a few times, watched different segments of that excruciatingly boring movie again. And in the end, after reading a lot as well, I think here's the position I kind of came up with. When Michael Jackson died in 2009, he had the presumption of innocence and the right to face his accusers. Because he died, he can do neither. Leaving Neverland is an interesting story. It raises awareness about abuse, and that's good. But it cannot be used to decide whether Michael Jackson was guilty or innocent, because we don't know how Michael Jackson would have responded. And we really need his side of the story and others that would defend him, and we really didn't get that either in Leaving Neverland. Just like at a trial, if you only heard the prosecution you would tend to think someone's guilty. It's when you hear the case put on by the defense that you start to think, hmm, maybe they didn't do it. I'm interested in hearing the case put on by the defense. Leaving Neverland is the prosecution, and it's only one side of the story. So if I'm to weigh everything at this point, I would have to lean more toward that behavior combining with wealth explanation. Michael Jackson had some odd behaviors, that made him look guilty and made him an easy target. But it's important to note here that I don't know. Wade Robson and James Safechuck and all the other accusers could be telling the truth. We just don't know. So it's a very challenging kind of case and situation. And it's unfortunate that these accusations could not have occurred when Michael Jackson was alive, if in fact the accusations are true. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.